Hey guys, uh, welcome to Sunday service. Good to have you guys. If you guys are at home watching with us, I hope you guys are ready uh, for the Word of God today. Um, we are in a series called Rooted in Christ, a year of uh, Christ-centered growth, you know, and um, the, the, the heart of what we're going to be covering for the next, you know, seven or eight weeks here is this picture of how do we move from belief to actually a change in character, right? Because we can easily say, I believe in Jesus, but there is no change in our life. We can, we can profess that Christ is our Lord and Savior, but we fail to reflect that into our lives. And the, and the, and the worst case, the best case scenario that we can have when we live a life of just proclaiming belief is that we can live inconsistency, cons- inconsistently with it, Meaning that once in a while God shows up and we give him praise and we give him glory and we kind of give him acknowledgement. But most of the time our life is just back to normal. Right? And at worst what can happen is we live a life of hypocrisy. Right? So the next few weeks what I'm going to be covering is that bridge of going from belief to ch- character change. Because until there's a character change in your life, until there's an actual change in what God is doing in your life, you're not going to be able to move towards the purpose, the trajectory, and the destiny that God has in store for you. There must be a season of growth that is going on in your life. And the bridge that brings from belief to character is through the Christian processes of worship, discipleship, mission, community, uh, fasting, praying, meditation, journaling, right? These, self, these Christian disciplines is what deeply roots us into this, this, this faith and this truth, embodying our emotions, our mind, our will, changing us from the inside out, okay? And to, last week, we talked about worship, how worship is ascribing ultimate value to God using all of our hearts, our mind, our energy, our will, to make that happen, right? ascribing all of, our, all of our ultimate value to God and using all of our being and our faculties to do so. Okay? And one of the indicators that God is really moving in your life is that there is a gnawing hunger for these disciplines, for worship, for mission, for discipleship, for community, stirring in your hearts, moving in you. Because yes, God will find you exactly where you are. doesn't matter where you are. God will save you as you are, but he refuses to leave you where you are. And if you are saved by God, and if he has changed, if he is coming to your life and taking you out of darkness into life, then what begins to happen is this gnawing sensation, this gnawing hunger that there must be something more. I have to change. I have to grow. And these discipline is how we get from belief into character change. And today, I'm going to share with you how. How we're going to worship God in the church, in our homes, in our life, our work. Okay? I usually don't ask you guys to take notes, but I'm going to tell you guys to take notes. Okay? This is as practical as my messages will ever get. Okay? So, how do we worship God at church? at home, and in our lives, okay? And worship, once again, let me tell you, is ascribing ultimate value to God and engaging our minds, our heart, and our will as we do that, okay? How do we worship God at church, at home, in our work life? 
I'm going to spend a little bit more time with the work because a lot of us are working, and I want to hit that, but I will hit up church and home, okay? So open your Bible to Psalm 95, 1 through 11. We went kind of really in-depth with it last week, so I'm just going to hit up this process here. How do we worship God at church, okay? How do we worship God at church? Look at, um, look at the, the tense that, that um, the, the, the psalmist uses or the, the person he uses. He says, in verse 1, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Verse 2, let us come before him with thanksgiving, extol him with music and song. We jump to verse 6, we see, come, let us bow down and worship. Okay? Let us kneel before the Lord our God, for he is our God. And so what we see here is that the way you worship at church is that it must be corporate. It must be a corporate worship. You really know an individual, right, not one-on-one. You know an individual by the amount of people that they are around with. Not because they're popular, but because people around them bring out different facets and, 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 and uniqueness about that person, right? Like, I'm very different with my wife. So when you see me act, uh, acting with my wife, that's a facet of who I am that you will never see if you hang out with me one-on-one because the way I hang out with my wife and the way I talk to my wife is very unique, very distinct. And so you see more of me when you see me hanging with my wife, when I'm interacting with my wife. Same thing when I'm interacting with my kids, right? You will see me differently in that way. So what we see in the corporate setting is that people help bring out the reality of who we are. There are things that we see in each other. So so how much more do you think happens with God? That if you think that individually all you need to do is sit at home by yourself and worship God, you you have the wrong picture because that one-on-one, you will never be able to see the fullness of who God is. You will never be able to see the fullness of his presence because you won't see the way God interacts. Some of us may see God in a, in a season of love where God is this amazing God of love or uh, amazing God of, of righteousness or holiness or mercy and it brings out and, and more of God is bring out of us, out of, um, out, out, we see more of God from the way our people are interacting with him. So there must be a corporate aspect to worship. You're not saved by coming to church. That's true right? But you will never be changed as a believer without going, to ch- without going to be with the church. It will never happen. To bring change about your life, there must be a corporate setting. So here, you guys give me the first part? The first part is very simple. You got to really be together. The idea of isolating and I still can c- connect with God, maybe for a season, maybe because something went wrong and maybe because you, you have to, but because you have to or maybe because it's a, uh, it's a, it's an excuse. It's not the norm, right? The norm is that you are able to continuously connect to God as a corporate setting. But not only do we gather together to worship God, there must be a gathering, but there must be a rhythm of worship, a rhythm of worship. Psalm 95 is one of the best psalms in terms of worship, okay? A lot of people, they, 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 a lot of churches, they, they set their liturgy based on Psalm 95. Verses 1 through 5, okay, is about praise, emotion, okay? It's about sing, let us shout. Verses 6 to 7, there's submission. Let us bow down, let us worship, right? Let us kneel, let us bow. And then verse 8 to 11, let us listen, okay? What, are, what, what is that happening here? What, what is the flow here? That's emotion, that's submission, that's listening. Praise, submission, listening to God's word. Worship is ascribing ultimate value to God with all of our 
emotions, all of our minds, all of our will, okay? Every part of our worship is designed for this. Do you guys know that? Every part of the worship that we create here on Sunday is for that purpose, is that you would engage all of your faculty to connect to God, okay? Think about this. Coming early to gather outside. Well, we want you guys to come early to gather outside to do what? To talk, to engage, to, to um, be with people, right? It is through people that you begin to see what God is doing. Hey, how's your week? Man, God's showing me all this crazy stuff, right? Man, God came through this week. Oh, you know what, man? I'm having a tough week. I'm going through a season of training and teaching here. There, there is this conversation that needs to be there, right? And you know what's crazy this year is that we, we have an amazing uh, team this year. We, we, we kind of uh, put together a Sunday service uh, team with our coordinator, Kayla, and she's going to be helping kind of craft this service to help make this picture more of a reality. But we come early to gather outside. Then we do what? Then we praise, right? When you come in here, you sing. This is to activate or this is to engage your emotion, to engage the heart, to ready it, to stir up this affection for our God, then what? Then you, then you have to listen to God's word. When you take notes, and as I'm teaching this stuff to you, as I'm sharing God's word to you, you're, you're, you're treasuring it, you're meditating on it, you're examining it, you're, you're, you're engaging with it, right? You're bringing it down. All of a sudden, these words become this, this, this transformation of renewing of your mind, the Bible says. And after that, what do we have? We have response through offering. Because I want you guys to know, the things we do at church, is not some random stuff we throw, okay? It's not some, stuff like, right, let's just do it together. There is, a, there is a liturgy for it. There's a whole entire study on this, right? You have to take a whole semester in seminary just to understand this process. But even with the offering and the communion, what is that part? That's submission of your will. Here you are, you, you, you affectionately, Sense the word of God, the, the, the songs of God, and you know, the, the praise team put together these music to kind of stir the affection, stir the heart. You listen to the word of God as it renews your mind, and now you have a, you have a process of submission to come up, to stand up, to walk up, to say, Lord, yes, I will. Yes, I can. Yes, I shall. A submission of your will. And then what do we do? We praise again, right? To stir again the heart, the response of the heart and the affection. And then announcement. You guys think announcement? Announcement is just, no. Announcement is submission. You guys know that? We're letting you guys know what's going on in the church so that you would do what? I should obey. I should be a part of that. There's Bible studies. I should probably go, right? There's a service. Maybe I should go and serve. There's a submission part, even to the announcements. And then today, I'm actually going to do something different today. I'm going I'm to add into to our service the Apostles' Creed, right? Uh, which is a, a, a listening element of what we believe as a believer. I'm, I'll share with you guys uh, during the response time. But, and then lastly, what? We go back out. We go back out to do what? To submit to God's thing, to, to live out our faith, to gather more believers. Every part of the service is designed and created to do what? To get you to the place of worship, to engage your mind, to engage your heart, to engage your will, because that's what worship is. Worship is ascribing ultimate value with every aspect of your being, every faculty of your being, okay? Everything, that, which means this, it tells me this, okay, guys, listen. Every part of worship is important. Every part of our service is important. You can't just come in late thinking, oh, they're just singing. We didn't miss anything, right? How many of you guys thought that? 
Oh, they just sing, oh, they're on the second song. We didn't miss much, right? Message is not here yet. Message is one part aspect of worship. Or the moment I say, let's pray, you're checking out already. You're getting ready for lunch. Your, your brain is shut off. You're like, I'm, I'm all, we're done. You're checking out. You're about to leave. No, because there's a submission part to it. There's a response part to it. Offering the prayer in heart. So I understand. I understand. Some, there are times when you come late. There's traffic. There's issues at home. Kids refuse to get in the car, right? There's uh, things that happen. You come late. I understand sometimes you have to leave early because things happen, right? But when you make it a habit, when it becomes a natural habit for you, okay, then you're not really worshiping. That's not real worship. Do you guys get that? When I say worship, I'm not saying come in here and sing. When I say we're worshiping, we're coming in here, we're engaging our voice in singing, we're engaging our ears in listening, we're engaging our, our will in submitting. All of that is worship. So all of that is important. All of that is needed if you want to go from belief to change of character. And I'm not saying just to go through the motion here, okay? It's like working. You guys know when you, when you work out? I, you know, I always see these memes of like, these like, old ladies, people making fun of old ladies coming in and just kind of do these random things on, their, on the machines, right? I didn't think that was real. Until I saw it, I'm like, oh, they do exist, right? Like, I thought this was all staged. Like, people actually work out like this. But you know if you work out, what do you got to do for each of your set? You can't just go through the motion. I mean, if you do this, I guess you're working out something, a little bit, right? But if you really want to engage the muscle, you have to be what? Intentional. Right? You have to activate the muscles. You got to go slow reps. Let it go. Breathe. Right? You got to activate those muscles. You got to be focused, making sure that's happening. When you do that, what happens to your muscles? They grow. Right? In the same way, if you want to say that I am worshiping in a way that is going to bring change to my life, it has to be intentional from the beginning to the end. Intentional with what? With when you sing. Praise. You know, our praise team is an amazing praise team, guys. I I don't know if you guys understand the the talents and the gifts they have, right? I I think you may take it for granted. I've come to churches. I preached at churches, right? And sometimes I'm like, hmm, right? Like, I get the heart. They have a lot of heart, you know? And I pray that our our, our worship team, they're, they're gifted, they, they pick these songs, they, they, they craft this, the, the set in a way that there's what? That's meant to stir our hearts. They pick lyrics that's meant to move and, and, and bring us to a place of submission before God, understanding our place before God. And so you got to be intentional when you come in here to just come to sing. It's not just, oh, I missed the first three songs. That's all right, they're just singing. That's not worship. You missed the whole point of that. You come to sing to stir up this heart, I'll tell you a story. Like, when I was in high school, I just became a believer. I'm, I'm, so you know when you first become a believer, you're very legalistic, so you just think you're a sinner all the time. You're like, oh my gosh, everything you do is sinning, right? And so I remember I, 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 in my heart, I, I felt so much shame. Because here I am, I said, God saved me, but I'm not changing. God saved me, but like, I'm still doing the exact same thing over and over and over. I'm still caught up in the same habits over and over and over. I will come to the pews thinking I don't belong here. And I'll come and I'll ask the Lord, like, God, I know you saved me. I know that your, 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 your cross is, 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 is it, it, you bled for me and, and all that stuff. But really, is it true that I am forgiven? Is it true that I, I remember that one, this one service where I sat, I came early, I sat down, and I, just, I was just praying, and I was like, God, is, I don't feel like I belong here. I feel like I'm a, I feel like I'm a fraud. I feel like I'm not a real believer, right? 
Like, over and over, Lord, I keep saying, am I really forgiven? And all of a sudden, we just sit there, and, you know, the call to worship happens, and the praise leader comes up. He picks a song. He picks up a guitar. He says, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. My heart was like, mm, right? Dude, Lord. And as I sing that song, the emotions just stir. I'm just reminded that my God saves. That my God is a God who saves. And I am forgiven. Not just partially forgiven. Not, not just temporarily forgiven. I am completely forgiven. And that comes from what? Engaging from beginning all the way to the end. Being intentional for each moment of the worship. You guys get that? So, please... If you're going to tell me you're going to worship God, change the habit, guys. Change the habit of coming in late. Change the habit of leaving early. Change the habit of checking out. But that let you let each moment be intentional for the worship of God. Engage your heart. Engage your mind. Engage your being in this worship. We're only here for an hour and a half. We come to give and ascribe ultimate value to our God. And when you do that, listen, guys, the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is, is, is something beautiful and powerful about a worship that is, one, that is done right. The Bible says it can bring sinners to their knees in repentance and lives can be changed. So my prayer for you as you are engaging in corporate worship here on church, that's what you do. From praise to listening to submission to praise to submission to listening to being out there, that we all are part of intentionally worshiping our God. Mind, body, will. You guys follow? Right? Does that make sense? Right? That's, that's worship in the church. That's worship when you come here. That's preparing your hearts as you are here. How do we worship at home? Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. Can we get Genesis chapter 5? Okay, can you put it up? Genesis chapter 5, verses 21. This is the story about Enoch, okay? Not my son, but the real Enoch, right? Enoch in the Bible, 21 to 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God for 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked with, faithfully with God, and he was no more because God took him away. Okay? Enoch was part of the line of Seth, right? which is the line after uh, Cain killed Abel. It's the line that brought forth Noah. Now, throughout the whole entire description, Enoch gets a very extra added description. Do you know why? Okay? Something, something uniquely happened with Enoch. Okay? Some, something happened in Enoch's life. And the way I want you guys to think about worship at home is I want you to think about the word legacy. Everybody say legacy. Spiritual legacy is what you are creating in your home. Okay? What Enoch did was this. He lived 65 years. He did whatever. Just did whatever. And then he had Methuselah. Okay? Now, I've preached on this before. Maybe, maybe you guys remember. The word Methuselah, the name Methuselah means this. It means when he dies, judgment will come, okay? When he died, which means that Methuselah was like baby Methuselah, 
I don't know why Enoch named him that, that name, but maybe God gave him the name or something happened that inspired that name. But the baby's name was, when you die, judgment will come. Okay? And so right after that, what did Enoch start doing? The Bible say, he walked with God. He began to worship God. He began to be with God. You know why? Because what is he doing right now? He's like, dude, guys, I'm not going to lie. When my kid dies, all y'all are judged. Okay? So whatever it is that you're doing that's not for the Lord, you better change your life now. Okay? He was walking with God. You know what Enoch means? The name Enoch, it means teaching. Right? Very prophetic. During a whole entire season of his life, what was he doing for 365 years? He was teaching everybody when he dies, y'all's judged. Okay? And so he spent his whole entire life teaching that to his children, pouring that into his family. Letting them know this. Worship your God. Turn to him only. Do not turn in your wealth. It is God and God alone that we bow our knees. It is God and God alone that we give our ultimate value. And Enoch's line was the only pure line of all of humanity. Seth, Enoch, ultimately, it was Noah, right? And Noah's, after Noah, what, what, do we, what do we see came? The flood, Right? Methuselah, I'm not going to do the math for you guys, but if you guys do the math here, Methuselah died 969 years. He lived 969 years. The year that Noah entered the flood was exactly 969 years, according to the Bible, right? And Noah was the last of humanity that obeyed God, that listened to God, that trusted God, that worshipped God. What was, Noah, what was he not doing? He was creating a legacy for his family to worship God. God, a spiritual legacy that did what? That stayed intact all the way till Jesus himself. A spiritual legacy. Let me, let me show you another example. Go to Genesis chapter 29. That's a dude, right? Let me, let me do a, a woman's legacy here, okay? Genesis chapter 29, verse 35, just in case you ladies are like, it's always about guys, okay? This is about Leah. Leah, okay, was the oldest, do- was the oldest daughter of um, Laban, Okay? He had two daughters, Rachel and Leah. Rachel was beautiful. Leah was questionable. Okay? That's what the, in the, the Bible says she had weak eyes, which is questionable. Okay? So she, she wasn't, but she was the oldest. And Laban, being tricky, he, he married, uh, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel because, you know, she was the pretty one. But, you know, Leah was like, <laughs> but, uh, I'm sorry, the father was like, I'm going to marry Leah off to you first. And Leah, being, you know, a woman, she was like, I just want to be loved. But she knew she wasn't loved by her husband because her husband loved Rachel more. He was willing to do anything for Rachel, but not for her. So he thought, she thought to, himself, to herself, if I can give Jacob sons, my husband will love me. So she bore him one son, which is great, by the way, and yet her husband still didn't love her. She bore him two sons. Her husband still didn't love her. She bore him three sons, which is like, legendary, okay? You have three boys in your family back in the days, you are, you are the lady. You are the top boss woman right there, right? Like, nobody can compare to you. You are G to the max, okay? Jacob still didn't love her. You know why? Throughout her whole entire life, she ascribed ultimate value, not to God. You know who it was to? It was to love. She was chasing after love. And then finally, at the fourth son, she wised up. She said, you know what? I've been chasing after love all these years. My husband doesn't care. What am I doing with my life? And then, at her fourth kid, she said this, 
This time, I will praise the Lord. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time, I will praise the Lord, and she named him Judah, and then she stopped having children. Do you know what the legacy of Judah is? He was the father of kings, which makes her the mother of kings. All the kings, all the good kings in the line of Israel came from Judah. And guess who ultimately, who was the king of kings that came from Judah? Jesus came from Judah. Leah, and you know at the end of Leah's life, that, that search that she, I mean, let's just go there because it's so good. Genesis chapter 50, um, uh, I, didn't, I didn't put this up there for you guys, okay? So hold on. People are like, I hate you, Tony. I hate you. All right. Hold up, hold up. Da, da, da. Give me one second. It's such a good ending. I just, I just want to let you guys know this. For you ladies right here. Da, da. Okay. Genesis chapter 49, verses 29. Okay? This is at the, at the deathbed of Jacob. Leah's husband, okay? At the deathbed of Jacob, Leah's husband. This is what happened here. Check this out. Chapter 49, verses 29. Chapter 49, okay. Then he gave these instructions. This is Jacob. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite. The cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre and Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as, as a burial place from, Eph, from Ephron the Hittite. Keep going. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried who? Go back, go back. Leah. Not Rachel. He didn't mention Rachel. He mentioned Leah at the end. She was a woman that stopped ascribing ultimate value for the love of her husband. She stopped chasing after love. She became a woman that chased after the one who is love. She became a woman that worshipped God. And in that worship of God, she bore forth Judah. And from Judah came the line, and the legacy of the kings of Israel. And from the kings of Israel came the king of kings, Jesus himself. What am I saying here? How do you worship at home? The key word that I want you guys to create in your mind is the key word of legacy. The way you worship at home is that you create a spiritual legacy for your family. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let me show you how to do that, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. One more. Is that it? That's it. Okay. All right? And so, what is happening here? How do we create a legacy? How do we create that legacy in our homes? It first starts with, can you put that verse, uh, verse 4 up again, or verse 5? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. Love the Lord your God. It starts with this. If you're not loving God and seeking to worship Him, okay, it starts with, it starts with loving God. What you do, what you love. You, in your home, you do what you love. If, you, if you're a family that's all about 
um, having a good time, then your focus in your family is going to be all about vacations and you know, parties and stuff like that. If your focus is about making your family look perfect, then your home is going to be titty, nice, and perfection all, uh, in, in every possible way because that's what you're trying to reflect. You, you, you love, you do what you love. So here's the thing. If you, before you even have a family, if you're a single person, if you're not loving God and seeking to worship him as a single, it's going to be very hard to seek to love God and worship him as a couple. And if as a couple, you're not seeking to love God while you are married, I'm going to tell you the truth. It's going to be very hard, not impossible here, but it's going to be very hard for you to help your children love God when you have kids. It starts with the love of God. How do you create legacy? The first question is love. Is Christ, is God the ultimate value of your life? And if he is, if he starts there, then what's the next thing? It says, teach what I'm about to tell you. Teach them when they're sitting down, when they're walking, when they're sleeping. You know what that's saying? It's not like, I'm not, I'm, no one's telling you to be at home, bust out a guitar, get in a little circle, and do kumbaya with your family, okay? No one's telling you to do that, okay? No, no fireplace, none of that crazy. And you don't have to do that. You can if you like. You don't have to. What Scripture is saying is this. To create this, to, to reflect this, to, to engage this into your family. When you sit, when you travel, when you sleep, make sure my presence is there. Meaning this, spiritual atmosphere. You will create a spiritual atmosphere in your home. Okay? That's different. You guys get me? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not telling you to become some legalistic, Bible-toting, like 24-7, like quoting scripture. That's nice. That's great. If you know that many scriptures to quote to your kids, amen, right? But what I'm saying is just, it's creating a spiritual atmosphere. That means when you're sitting down, watching TV, and you're watching a video, and watching a movie, and something comes up that's pretty interesting that you want to teach your kid about, kind of add on to because they just saw something that's happening, you're kind of confused, what do you do? You explain, you teach, you share, you help them understand what they're viewing, okay? And you're not just sitting there like, oh, just watch the thing, you know, get lost in it. But you're caring for that. You're asking questions when you're sitting down before dinner. You're not just like, this is just eating, just get out of here, right? But you're sitting, you ask, hey, how was your, how was your week? How, I mean, how's your day? Anything happened that kind of we can want to pray about? Is there any situation that you want to give God thanks to? Is there, you're creating a spiritual atmosphere so that the rhythm of your family's life tells you that God is in the midst of all of that. He's in the midst of the way you speak and talk when you're sitting down. But when you travel, you know, the best thing sometimes for, for, for parents to do is just throw the phone to their kids and just drive and just, shh, don't talk to me. Just let me. Sometimes it works. Sometimes you just try to eat your chicken nuggets, don't talk to me, right? And just let me drive. But sometimes, you know, some of the best times is when you're driving, you ask them questions. Hey, anything happened at school today? You know? What bothered you so much? How would you respond next time? You're creating a spiritual atmosphere. How was work? When you're sleeping, and you're kind of just decompressing the rest of the day, and just kind of relaxing, you're about to go to sleep. You're asking, you're talking. Okay? You're creating a spiritual atmosphere for your family. That's how you worship God at home. You guys get me? 
right? But it starts with, if, you're, if you guys are out there and you're single, it's like, oh, I'll just wait till I get a family before I apply this stuff. No, it starts now. You can't turn this stuff on like a light switch, guys. It's not like after you say, I do, all of a sudden, oh, I'm a holy man, right? It doesn't work that way. You start now. You know, and you start with, you practice with what? You practice with your disciples, with your disciples. You practice with your small groups. You're, you're doing this in a corporate setting so that when you actually are married, you're able to do this naturally with your wife. It's not awkward. And, let me, and if, you, if it is awkward, let me tell you guys, it's okay. If it's awkward, it's okay. The first few times, it's going to be hard. But, you know, if you just keep practicing, you just keep moving at it, you're going to get better and better over time, right? You know, I have these family ministries, and sometimes, you know, when I talk about, like, dads, I make fun of the dads, right? The mom's like, yeah, you know, nudging the husband. Like, no, 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 no. You know what you should do? You should praise your husband. If he, as at this point, all he can do is pray for your kid at night, acknowledge that, love on him, pray for him, and say, you're doing a great job. Just keep praying for our kids, right? You know, that stuff adds on over time. And it adds from simply praying to like, you know what, maybe we should read something too, right? And you know, maybe we should start talking. about it. And it just keeps adding. If that's not part of the regular part of your life coming into the marriage, it's okay. You can start now. Take baby steps. Everything is baby steps. And lastly, part of creating the atmosphere. So you got to start loving. You have to be in a place where the center of your home is that we love God. This is a kingdom-building family. This is a Christ-centered family. This is what we seek to do. And then we create a spiritual atmosphere for that. And then thirdly is what? You reflect that as a family. You know, the Bible says put these things on your head and your arms. You know, it's like, are you supposed to actually write the words on your arms? No. The idea, put them on your door frames. What the author is saying is this, or uh, uh, that's the principle, the method here is this, okay? Is that when people look at you, they look at your family, what should they see? They should see a family that worships God. They should see a family that reflects God's principles, God's life. You should know your neighbors. You should know their names. You should have interaction with them. When people see your family, your family should be a family that reflects the very image and very presence of God in their lives. You guys follow? Okay? All right. So, home worship. It's about legacy. Everybody say legacy. Right? Legacy. When you create a legacy, how do you do that in the home? How do you practice creating worship at home? Love your God. Teach it to your children when they're sitting, when they're walking, when they're lying asleep. Reflect that as a family. Serve together. Be together. Right? Show the world. Do things together. Bless the neighbors together. That you are a Christian family, a God-loving family, a worshiping family. And if you do that, you're worshiping God at home. You're creating a place of worship at home. And when you, I mean, can I tell you the truth? And if you do that, guess what? Your children will go from belief to character change. One of the biggest things about youth guys, and you guys, I, I think you guys know this, right? And I think maybe you guys too. One of the most difficult things about you guys bridging that gap of belief for you was probably through your family. Because they talk a lot of Christian stuff, but they don't really live it out, right? They talk about we love God, but it doesn't reflect in the spiritual atmosphere of the home. It doesn't reflect in the way they treat other people. It doesn't reflect in the, and they see it as what? Best inconsistent, worst hypocrisy. It becomes an actual barrier to engage with God, to people to know God, for you to even know God. 
So my prayer for you is that if, if, if you cultivate this, to love God, to create a spiritual atmosphere, to reflect him in, as a family, there's a greater growth of, from belief to character change, to see your children's change, to see your life's change, to see your husband's change, to see your wife's change, to see your life change. That's home worship. Okay? Third one. Is ready? It's going to be a little longer one. This is work worship. How do you worship God at work in my life? Okay? Go to, uh, it's going to be a bunch of uh, verses. Go to the first one. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Matthew 13, verse 55. This is what he says. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his, isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Okay? Jesus' job, well, he was known as a what? As a carpenter. A carpenter's job back then was a peasant's work. He worked with his hands. He had, he had calluses, okay? 90% of his life was work. He worked for the majority of his life. People ask, how do I be godly, Tony? Well, God works. You should get a job, right? You can't be godly if you don't work. See, this, the, the, the cultural sense that we have nowadays of entitlement is very evil. I understand why we need basic income. I understand why we need health care to be free. I understand why we want college to be free, okay? But here's the problem, that oftentimes you want all these things to be free and all you do is just sit on the couch, play video games, download porn, eat your mother's food, then vote for people who send you checks. And you feel like you're entitled to that. You don't need Jesus to know that doesn't work, right? You just need to believe in math. If everyone's not working, there's no money and there's debt. Jesus worked. God worked. He, he works. But I, I get it. Some of you guys think, well, work sucks, PT. You're right. It does suck, right? And you know why? It's not because it works. It's because of the fall. In Genesis, we see what happened, right? The first thing that God gave to Adam was what? Not a wife. He gave him a, gave him a job. He gave him a job before he gave him a wife. Do you, do you understand how important work is to the fundamental nature of humanity? There's something about working that brings out more of who you are. God gave Adam a job before he gave him a wife. Brothers, singles, think about that first, okay? Before I get a wife, maybe I should get, yeah, get a job, right? And then what happened? Adam decides to sin. Adam and Eve decides to sin. And then work became a curse. The Bible says work became a curse. You would toil with the ground, and the ground will give you thistles and thorns. The curse is what? Work will do to you. Work will treat you the way you treat God. Work will do to you the way you treat God. Work will curse you the way you curse God. All right? And as a result of that, three things begin to happen, and it plays out in our humanity. Check this out. In a fallen world, okay, we try to figure out how we can do as little as possible and still breathe. Isn't that true? We try to do as little possible as work as we can. And, this think, and we think that this is a virtue. Like, yeah, I'm, I cannot wait to figure out the best way or the fastest way to do as little as possible. Do absolutely nothing and still get paid. And I'm not talking about working smarter here, not harder. I'm talking about the laziness that we think that virtue 
comes from not wanting to work at all. That's not a virtue, guys. And even if you go on vacation forever, there's going to be a time, there's something about the human heart that makes you want to create something, want to put forth something, want to establish something, want to flourish something, right? In the fallen world, we try to find shortcuts, don't we? Everyone's trying to find the easy way of making a buck. Isn't there? Is there? Right? Is there an easy way to make a dollar? No, right? You just got to work for it. I got great advice. I was talking to a brother about stocks. Like, like, teach me about it. And he was telling me, get rich scheme, right? Get rich quick scheme is get poor quick scheme, right? That's really what it is. He used to tell me, like, you know, I know that you hear all these stories about some dude buying, like, $8,000 of some random coin, and then, bam, multi-millionaire, right? That's one guy. There's hundreds of millions of y'all's, right? You think that somehow that it's going to be this quick, rich, get quick, get rich, quick scheme going on? No, you have to work. Anything you do, marriage, family, business, income stream, financial portfolio, investment, you're going to put some work into it, and it's going to take some time. There's no shortcuts here. But in our fallen world, we try to find shortcuts all the time. What else do we see? The results of the fall of work. We make excuses. We don't make plans. We make excuses why things can't get done. We see it in our pandemic. We have all these people making all these excuses of why all these things cannot be done, and we have no one making a plan. And our plan is basically wait for somebody to tell us what to do next. Right? That's adorable. That's cute. Leadership is about making a plan. Having a plan. Having a plan for your family. Having a plan for your business. Having a plan for your future. It's having a plan. You can't stop making excuses and start making plans. A whole generation, guys, is lost, is being destroyed because we allow them to make excuses to do what? Not plan, not prepare, not take responsibility, not execute anything. All we got to say, all they have to tell is COVID. And also, that's just the killer of all things. So you can't plan anything? Nope, COVID. So what about your future? Nope, COVID. What about, nope, COVID. And we allow that. We're like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Let's just wait till this all gets over. In a fallen world, will things get better? No, it will not get better. It's fallen. It will always be bad. And the worst thing we can do is constantly allow for excuses to take role of when we should be planning. Leaders plan. We're supposed to plan. Church should be planning. Family should be planning. Right? We worship God, and we cannot worship God unless we work. I want you guys to understand. God worked. So what did Jesus do? When Jesus showed up to, 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 onto the scene, when Christians began to be um, part of the society, you know what happens? Christians and what Jesus did, they revolutionized work. They redeemed work. They restored the curse of work. Jesus showed up, right? And in the verse we just read, he was the carpenter's son. He came into poverty, not nobility. Is that true? He came into a working family, not a rich family. He came to serve, not be served. He was a carpenter. That was the work of peasants. Do a mind exercise with me today, okay? Just imagine Jesus shows up at your house, and he's cleaning out your pool, or he's cleaning out your trash, or he's, or he's uh, cleaning out your gutters. And you're asking, Jesus, you're God. What are you doing? Cleaning out your gutters. Don't you have anything better to do? Like, well, someone's got to do it. There was a storm. It blew all these things away. Somebody's got to do it. 
This is why we miss Jesus. We miss who he is. You know why? And it, and it reflects horribly on our character and in our lives because we miss this picture of who Jesus is. We think, surely, he wouldn't work a job, right? And if he did work a job, it would be a big job. It would be an important job. It would be something really cool. His ministry was only how many years? How many years? Three years. How many years do you think he was a carpenter for? Decades, right? And before when he was a baby, he was probably helping dad out, right? He was working his whole life. He spent most of his life working a blue-collar job, three years doing ministry. And we have this mentality. We have this crazy mentality that he must, be, he must have a corner office. He can't be holding a mop, right? That's our Jesus. So imagine this. Imagine how silly it is when we hear stuff like this. I can't do this job. Why not? Because I just can't do things that I'm not passionate about. Well, somebody's got to do it. Or don't give me what I, don't give me a job what I, uh, that can't get me to where I need to be for my future life, right? Or it's just a little bit beneath me. Jesus took a blue-collar job. Work wasn't beneath Jesus. It wasn't menial to Jesus, and it shouldn't be menial to us. One of the greatest things my youth pastor taught me when I was a youth group, right? We were over at a house, and we were having dinner at someone else's house. And afterwards, he got up, and he started cleaning the dishes. This is me. I just barely became a believer. I have no idea. I was like, but, you know, for that time, you know, I didn't have a father, so youth pastor was like, you know, spiritual father. And I kind of just elevated him up pretty high. And I was like, yo, Steve, what are you doing? I'm doing dishes. I was like, why? He's like, it's not our house. It's their house. He's like, and? You're like, you're, you're the dude that preaches the Bible. You're not supposed to preach. I mean, clean the dishes. And he looked at me and said this. Jesus cleaned people's feet, Tony. We can clean the dishes. I was like, yes, sir. Right? Oh, man. If it wasn't menial for him, it shouldn't be menial to us. You know what I'm saying here? What I'm saying here is this. God worked. God worked. So the idea of us sitting around waiting for somebody to give us a check, that is not godly at all. You got to work, church, brothers. You got to have a job, right? Ladies, if a guy tries to approach you, two questions. Do you love Jesus? Do you have a job? If it's no to either one, sorry, come back later, right? Go to Luke chapter 22, okay? God works. But check this out, verse 22, verse 24, 28. This is uh, disciples talking to Jesus. They say, hey, who's going to be best among us, right? Let, me, let us know, Jesus. So a dispute arose among them as, the, as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Next. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, meaning the, the kings, the people of nobility, they tell you what to do. They force you. They command you. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater than the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It is not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. Jesus is saying, look, you stooges. Can you imagine like three stooges asking Jesus, how do we become great among you, Jesus? 
right? Well, guess who's great? Who's actually great among you? Me. And if I'm actually great among you, what is my act? I serve. Jesus is saying, my life is to serve. That's what I came to do. I came to serve. That's, what, that's why Christianity is so different from every other faith and every other thoughts. Every faith genuinely you say there's a problem between you and God and there's something you got to work at to kind of fix that problem, right? The difference is the question of who does the work. Every other religion will tell you what? You do the work, right? You, your, your good has to outweigh your bad. So work harder at being good. Your karmic, your karmic deeds has to be great. You have to pay off that karmic debt in order for you to find nirvana. So pay it off. Work it off. Only Jesus shows up and he says what? He does all the work. He, he does the work of the salvation. He lives the perfect life. He dies the substitutionary death. He rises to conquer sin, death, hell, and the wrath of God. Jesus did all the work for you and I to be saved. Jesus came to serve. Jesus' whole life was about serving. His whole entire mentality, his whole entire act was to serve people. His work was to serve. His three years of ministry was just ministry. And here's the thing about this, okay? You guys think that I have to be some sort of like holy person to be serviced. That's not true. Your work, whether you are from law, engineer, medical, whatever, it it's all meant to do what? Serve. Jesus was a carpenter for decades of his life. And during that whole entire time, he lived to worship because he lived to serve. His whole life was service. It wasn't just the three years of ministry that he was a, service, a servant. His whole life was a servant. Your work and worship to God is not defined by your pedigree or your status, guys. It's defined by the service. How are you seeking to serve others in your work? That's how you worship God. How are you seeking to serve others, to give unto others? What field are you in? Right? Whether you're white collar or blue collar, how are you saving? I mean, how are you serving and how are you blessing other people in your job? You want to ask me the question, how am I supposed to worship in my work? Then I ask you the question, who are you serving in your work? Jesus did not come to lord over people, he came to serve people. The way you worship at work is that you live to serve people. You guys get me? God works, so you should work. His life was service. And so when you think about your job, think about how you go and serve people at your work. Here's the third thing here. Here's the third thing. Second Thessalonians. A couple more, okay? This is good. Hang in there. Is this practical? It's pretty practical, right? I think it's practical. Second Thessalonians, can you put it up? Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. That's a very, that's a very basic rule here, guys. You want to eat? You should what? You should work, right? It's not rocket science. If you want to eat, you should be working. It's not like I want to eat, but I'm just going to sit around and do nothing all day in my PJs and hope your mom gives me food. You want to eat, you should be working. Go next. Okay? We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Right? The principle is if you don't work, you don't eat. That's the opposite of entitlement. If you think you're entitled to something, read your Bible again. You don't work. You don't eat. 
God expects his people to work and earn without entitlement. What Paul is saying here is this. There are two kinds of people. People who are busy working and people who are busy bodies, right? People who are busy working are people who are working. They're caught up in their job. They're doing their work. They're serving. They're doing their, uh, their business. Those who are busy bodies are doing what? Critiquing those who work. They sit around and all, can do, all they can do is find out reasons why those people are doing their job wrong. You know, talking about busybodies, right? They sit around all day thinking, oh, so and so is wrong, this and this is bad. They're not doing anything about it, they're just talking about it. Does that sound familiar, right? Social media is the Greek word for busybody, okay? Right? Come on, how come, you, how come he's the only one that always gets this? Okay, right? These are, these are gold jokes, guys, right? All right. So, social media, okay. These people who sit around and talk while everything is done, or these people, who, they sit around, they talk while everything is done wrong. They critique. Church should be like this. Church should be like that. Church should have this act. Church should have that. When you work, you should, they shouldn't have done that at work. They shouldn't have done this at work. They're just busybodies. All they do is they see problems, but they don't see it in themselves. They don't see it in themselves. They see it in everybody else. They don't do anything to fix it. They just like to talk about it. Busybodies. If you see a problem, then work. Actually work to be the solution. Not sit around and be the headache. We live in a world where everyone gets to be a critic and nobody gets to do anything. And guess what? We feel mature about that, right? Because we're virtual signaling. We're raising social awareness. Instead of actually going out there and doing anything about it, we just sit there and we just talk about it. Here in Thessalonians, the Bible says, stay busy. Stay busy. What work has God for you to do? If you're in between jobs, stay busy. Don't just sit around. If you're in between jobs, get up. Fill out them resumes. Stay sharp. Stay up to date with your knowledge. Study. Don't just sit at home. Don't just eat mom's food and, and pray for something to happen to kind of just get a windfall of money that comes your way. Stay busy. Work. Don't be a busybody. Last one. Colossians 3. 23-24. Colossians 3, 23-24. So what do we see about worship and work? God works, so we should work. Okay? God works, so we need to work. <laughs> work to serve. Your work should be a service to others. In your work, you should be serving others. And then lastly, I mean, and, and then what we saw is that you got to stay busy. You got to be working. Don't just sit around and be idle. Last is this. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Right? Work is worship to God and a witness to others. Work is worship to God and a witness for others. Whatever you do, plumber, HVAC, business, doctor, lawyer, CEO, work hard. You know, like, I talk to like, people who are like, employers. You know what they tell, they tell me? It's hard for them to find good employees nowadays. They'll find somebody, they'll come in, and then three days later, they'll quit because the person found another job, better things. They just kind of walked out. It's hard for them to find this. 
And this is such a great opportunity nowadays for believers to get into the work field. It's a, it's a great opportunity for believers to get in there because you become a witness to others while you are worshiping God. You are called to be out there, right? They, they, they tell me stuff like, you know, these, these employees, they come in, they, they, they do their job, they're late, they quit soon after, and they can't depend on these guys, these employees that comes in, okay? And it's a crisis for our country, but it's an opportunity for you and for what God is doing through you and God's children, not just for the external reward, not just for the paycheck, okay? But ultimately knowing that what you do in your work builds up for you an inheritance before God in heaven. You work as a Christian. You work as a Christian. What does that mean? You don't work for the boss. You don't work for the company. You work for the Lord. You're conscious of what you are doing for God's glory, not simply for the paycheck. If you say you're a Christian, you work as a Christian in your workplace because there are people around you who are not believers, right? And you become a bad witness when you say you believe one thing and your character doesn't show it. It's a bad reflection on Jesus. So what does it look like to work as a Christian? Real, real quick, All right? Some practical, basic things, okay? Show up early. Don't be late. If you're doing something and your shift ends, clock out, then go back and volunteer your time and finish the job. Always look for things to do. If you have downtime, look for things to do to flourish the environment you're in. Clean around you. Organize. Restock. Connect. Invent. Take out the trash. If you run out of things to do, ask someone for help. Hey, how can I help you? Is there anything you need to do? Like, what can I help you in your project? Can I do something for you? Treat the highest paying person in the company and the lowest paying person in the company the same way. You treat them well. From the boss who wears the Rolex to the dude who wears the Casio calculator and stuff, right? You treat them well. You know their names. You give them empathy. You know their children. If someone starts trouble with you, you find ways to love them. You find ways to serve those here in your workplace. That's how you worship God at work, guys. That's how you are a reflection of Christ in your work field. That's how, when you say, I'm a Christian, it reflects out there. You're called to worship. Worship is ascribing ultimate value to God. When Jesus came, he worked. He worked to bring you home. He worked for the glory of God. My prayer is that we don't just talk about this, right? If you really want to see transformation, guys, if you want to see transformation in your life, if you want to see real change in your life, at your church, in your home, in your workplace, worship God. Be intentional when you're at church. Create the spiritual legacy when you're at home. Work because God works when you're in the work field, in your life. Work. That's how you worship. That's how you ascribe ultimate value. Let's pray.